This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past and your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. Today, our guest is Frank Gritty. He's a professor in the history department at UT Austin, and he specializes in African-American history. And today, our subject is the Harlem Renaissance. And he's speaking to us today from Paris via Skype. So we're really excited to have him here, but we may have a few momentary problems with the audio. Hi, Frank. Hello, Joan. So, Frank, why don't we start off with a general definition explanation. What is the Harlem Renaissance? The Harlem Renaissance uh, it was a cultural, political movement which established, I think successfully, uh, the importance and, and maybe even the centrality of African-American and African-derived culture and history to the evolution of the United States, to the evolution of Western civilization. In retrospect, I think, again, successfully, it challenged the, and overturned the prevailing notion that black people, people of African descent, had no history, had no culture. And uh, much of those assumptions consolidated not just after slavery, well, during slavery and after, uh, and in the 1910s and 20s. 20s uh, and into the 1930s, what we see is this kind of broad-based movement that, you know, across genres of art and music and letters uh, that basically sought to demonstrate the importance of of black culture uh, and its contributions to the West. Great. So you're talking about a movement that's cultural and political. It's probably hard to separate the two, but let's start with the cultural movement. Who were the most important figures at the beginning of the movement who really kicked things off? Yeah, on the cultural front, I think what many of our scholars focus on are the writers and the poets, right? So novelists like Gene Toomer, who wrote uh, Kane, a very important novel, early, this is now 1923 or so. And also, you know, for me, Langston Hughes is... Um, it's extremely important in the early, as an early figure in terms of poetry, in terms of taking uh, black vernacular culture and speech and turning it into poetry. Uh, and Counting Cullen, uh, Claude McKay, J- uh, Jesse Fawcett, a lot of us focus on the writers and the poets. Uh, and indeed, you know, Harlem Renaissance is kind of a, a standard course in many American English uh, courses now, like at UT. And then, I mean, then you're, you're moving into the realm beyond that of musicians, uh, Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson. Uh, and as important, I think, are not just the artists themselves, the writers, but also those who promote them. Uh, people like Alain Locke, who is a Harvard-educated uh, PhD philosopher who takes it upon himself uh, to p- sort of promote uh, many of this younger generation of black writers and artists. Charles Johnson, sociologist who edited uh, opportunity, which is the um, periodical of the National Urban League. He's an extremely important figure. So you've got, you know, the artists themselves, but as important, I think, are, are these, these promotional figures, these figures who help promote the work of these you know, mostly younger generation artists uh, for a black audience, but also across racial audience, across, you know, uh, white audiences in the United States, but also internationally as well. How would you explain how this whole new generation of artists and writers and thinkers suddenly emerged right at the turn of the century? 
I would I would explain it by talking about a broader context of the period, namely uh, the consolidation of uh, Jim Crow segregation in the South, uh, which is a major push factor in pushing African Americans uh, to northern cities. Uh, there is a generation of college educated. Uh, people of African descent in uh, historically black institutions, Howard University, Fisk, uh, Tuskegee, among others, uh, and that's producing a kind of a new class of, of uh, aspiring black young people, some of them aspiring artists and writers as well. Uh, and then there's a massive, as I said earlier, massive migration uh, of African Americans to the north and also uh, black Caribbeans uh, from uh, the Anglophone Caribbean and also the Spanish being Caribbean to northern cities, New York in particular, Harlem, but others. And so I think, you know, the, this combination of migration, political repression, and then also political aspirations heightened by World War One, the sort of need to bring uh, the notion of democracy home uh, to apply it to uh, black people. Uh, I think those are the factors that produce this this uh, this uh, this tumultuous yet creative uh, movement. Mm-hmm. And you've written about uh, Afro-Cubans in New York and in the United States and in the Harlem Renaissance. Maybe you could talk about um, the sort of international impact and uh, influence on the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, I think the international influence is great. And uh, I think we know about it in Europe, in France, in Paris. Uh, we know about the contributions of English-speaking uh, Caribbean people to the movement as intellectuals, as artists, as political activists. Uh, but the Spanish-speaking uh, black uh, diasporic element has been understudied. And I think for me, uh, the Cuban uh, aspect becomes very interesting, uh, not because you have a massive millions of Cubans of African descent migrating to the north, but because Cuban artists and intellectuals are sort of brought, and writers and uh, musicians are brought into this sort of broader circuit of performers uh, that comprise uh, sort of the, the Harlem Renaissance, right? These artistic networks mm-hmm. cultivated by black institutions uh, in the North, uh, and they're publicizing the work of Afro-Cuban writers like Nicolas Guillén, uh, the artwork of sculptors like Teodoro Ramos Blanco. Uh, and so Cuba is interesting in the sense that uh, the black Cuban writers and artists are also part of this movement, being sort of showcased in uh, some of the, the more prominent Harlem Renaissance periodicals. Okay, so there's this whole international dimension to the Harlem Renaissance that certainly I didn't appreciate before. Are there also sites of similar movements outside of New York, outside of Harlem? Uh, within the United States? For sure, yes. I mean, I think, uh, uh, and this has been made very clear by a recent book uh, called Escape from New York, uh, a, a large anthology edited by historians Mika Mancalani and Devarian Baldwin, uh, and they have highlighted precisely the notion of this new Negro movement uh, uh, that is very much part of the Harlem Renaissance is really happening throughout the United States. Chicago is a major site of uh, black cultural uh, affirmation, uh, economic activity of the South Side of Chicago, what becomes known as Bronzeville, is a major site for much of the same thing we associate going on with Harlem. Uh, economic activity, artists, intellectuals, and, and musicians moving through that circuit. Uh, Los Angeles is another site in the 1920s. And so I think the more we study about the Harlem Renaissance, the more we realize it has a broader national um, not not as an impact from Harlem, but literally it's happening simultaneously, this cultural movement. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. New York is the sort of major site of it. 
Okay, well, we've been focusing on cultural issues, but really the political is coming in now, too. So um, could you sort of summarize what the political movement of the Harlem Renaissance was? And then we'll talk about some of the details. Politics is uh, is uh, varied and diverse, uh, as the cultural movement is, right? Mm-hmm. One of the more well-known political movements of the Harlem Renaissance era was uh, a movement called Garveyism, uh, led by Marcus Garvey, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Uh, Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican immigrant uh, to the United States. He sells in New York, uh, and he gets involved in sort of Harlem, New York politics, but he basically helps lead what most historians call the sort of largest black mass movement in the history of the African diaspora, because it's really happening in Harlem, but also throughout the African diaspora, Cuba, uh, Central America, uh, various divisions throughout the United States. Uh, And Garveyism is all about sort of uh, crafting a new politics of a new Negro, uh, and that uh, African diaspora should have their own nation, should have their own commercial enterprises, should have their own schools, very much a race-first philosophy that uh, is very attractive to uh, black people across class um, um, uh, locations. I mean, that's one of the things about Garveyism, it's a very, very much a mass movement. Then you have uh, more elite middle-class movements uh, led by uh, the NAACP, uh, led by, of course, the very famous uh, black intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois, who eloquently articulated the aspirations uh, for racial, political, civic, uh, and social equality. Um, uh, in the years uh, starting 1909, but really taking 1920 in the Harlem Renaissance era. Um, and so you've got this kind of more middle-class elite movement galvanizing around the NAACP, and then you've got this mass movement led by the Garvey, uh, Marcus Garvey, and then you've got a host of other socialist and communist movements that are also agitated at the same time, and often articulating similar uh, sort of aspirations, but also very much in conflict as well around class and uh, around the sort of ultimate goals of these movements. Uh, were, were socialism and communism popular among the um, members of the Harlem Renaissance? I would say yes. I think uh, a number of them are moving in and out of different socialistic, communistic organizations. Uh, some of them are starting their own. So Cyril Briggs, more than sort of way immigrant uh, called the African Blood Brotherhood, which is sort of advocating for black um, politics. Uh, a lot of these movements are led by uh, West Indian migrants to the U.S., but also African-Americans. A. Philip Randolph is, a, is very much a part of this uh, embryonic labor socialistic movement. He's a very famous civil rights labor activist uh, for many, many decades in the 20th century. And so, yes, you've got, you've got a, a host of sort of radical movements um, um, articulating all of this stuff. This also makes up part of the, the sort of the, the literature of the movement. They're producing their periodicals, they're producing essays, they're producing all sorts of political tracts, and that very much makes up, uh, comprises the the archive of what we call the Harlem Renaissance today. Mm-hmm. So they're all they're all in dialogue with each other about how best to promote African Americans and African American culture and lead towards more equality. They absolutely are in dialogue with each other and and often in conflict with each other. And I think, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think many of the movements were jealous of the the mass appeal of Garveyism, 
And in fact, that led a number of uh, sort of black or African-American, black Caribbean activists to advocate for the overthrow or the end of Garveyism. They sort of are very happy that Garvey meets uh, his demise in the mid-late 1920s. Mm-hmm. So they're in dialogue with each other, no question about it. And sometimes it, 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 it erupted in, in open conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense the different, that there have to be different ideas about how to move forward. What other kinds of tensions are there within the Harlem Renaissance? Yeah, I think the political tensions I just described are, are very much reflective in the promotion and the reception uh, of Harlem Renaissance uh, writers and artists, right? I think, uh, you know, like all artistic movements, they can't be uh, neatly packaged uh, into something uh, that uh, has one message. Mm-hmm. And I think a number of the, including W.B. Du Bois and some of the uh, sort of more elite leaders were a little anxious about uh, the the sort of ways in which uh, writers like Langston Hughes were, were portraying black life, right? I mean, they were, Hughes is writing poems in the speech of what he imagined the black vernacular speech. He's talking about things that are happening in the nightclubs. He's talking about, there's a, there's a poem of uh, Beale Street, a love in which he's talking about black domestic violence, right? So he's talking about things that are that are sort of sort of seen as the ugly side of black urban life and rural life in some cases. And some of the African American elites uh, were very anxious and upset about that. I mean, like uh, 1927, Langston Hughes's "Fine Clothes to the Jew," the volume of poems, very much negatively received by a number of prominent black newspapers. Uh, and so you've got this class tension, you know, around sort of the politics of respectability and the need to, on the one hand, project that African-Americans and black people have art and culture. On the other hand, they want to do it in this sort of sanitized way that many of these artists are not interested in, in presenting. Mm-hmm. So far, we've been talking almost entirely about men. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were there were some important women writers and activists, weren't there? Absolutely. So, I mean, among the novelists, Jesse Fawcett uh, and, and scholars, including our own Jennifer Wilkes at UT Austin, have talked about um, uh, the works of uh, Fawcett and a number of other African-American writers. Uh, then there's uh, among the black radical activists, Grace Campbell. Uh, was very much part of uh, sort of those black radical movements uh, galvanized by a lot of those Caribbean intellectuals and activists. You've got Eric McDuffie's new book on black radical women uh, in the communist movement, uh, Louise Thompson. Uh, you've got Zora Neale Hurston, writer, uh, anthropologist, researcher, black folk life. So absolutely. I mean, I think what much of the, the most recent, the more recent scholarship over the last decade or two uh, has really focused on uh, not just the contribution of women, uh, but also the ways in which sexuality uh, is very much part of, a queer sexuality is a part of the uh, the life of these intellectuals, but also in the themes of the works themselves. And so we have a much more rich understanding of this movement that's beyond a kind of male-centric uh, narrative that had predominated beforehand. Mm-hmm. And um, Harlem was very attractive to white intellectuals during this period as well, right? Yes, absolutely. White uh, intellectuals, Carl Van Vechten, uh, is extremely important uh, in the Harlem Renaissance, right? I mean, he's the one who, who's putting a lot of these aspiring black uh, writers and artists in touch with uh, some of the main presses at the time. Knopf, for example, was publishing a number of uh, the works of Hughes and other uh, writers associated with the movement. Uh, you know, Carl Van Vechten is sort of shepherding their work to them. Uh, he is becomes a documentarian himself by photographing a number of these uh, artists and writers. Uh, then there's the patrons, right? Uh, Ch- uh, uh, Osgood Mason, who uh, bankrolled a number of these artists and writers uh, in their, and had these kind of complicated 
relationships with Hughes, with Hurston, with Elaine Locke. Uh, and then, of course, there's the folks who are packing the Cotton Club and coming up to Harlem and seeing uh, the jazz and the dancers at the Savoy and the Cotton Club and other clubs in Harlem. And so there's no question that it's, it's, a, it's a cross-racial phenomenon. Um, that, on the one hand, is, is uh, I think, uh, emblematic of a genuine interest in black culture and black art and black writing, but also is invested in a kind of primitivist view of uh, black life, right? So the idea is that they're going there and consuming these cultural products because they're perceived as exotic and different and therefore exciting in that way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of whites are going up just to consume exotic black culture in the clubs in Harlem and are also consuming a lot of the writing and uh, political and cultural writing. Do you think that there were any positive impact of this new sort of interaction between blacks and whites? Absolutely, yes. I think that uh, notwithstanding uh, the fact that uh, these interactions are driven by this kind of exotic or the, the desire for the exotic, the desire to sort of pander to white audiences and to consume that kind of exotic culture, uh, there's no question that uh, the movement uh, has a tremendous impact in, in increasing the awareness of non-blacks to this vitality uh, of black culture and its centrality to American and Western life. Uh, and I think uh, the Van Vechtens and the, and all the publishing houses that publish these writers, uh, the people, the, the nameless people who we don't know who went to these clubs certainly gained a greater awareness of the, the artistic genius of uh, Duke Ellington, Mm -hmm. Fletcher, Henderson, and Langston Hughes, no question. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think was the impact of the Harlem Renaissance on uh, American culture in the long term? Yeah, in the long term, I think that it's a tremendously pivotal moment in the evolution of uh, sort of African-American, the people of African descent in the world and in the United States. Uh, I think that uh, the Oscars of a couple of days ago uh, sort of reinforces that point, right? I think that uh, the critical acclaim that 12 Years a Slave has has received, and even Django Unchained last year, uh, I mean, those are just two small sort of cinematic examples that demonstrate that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that they're about complicated themes like slavery and oppression, uh, that uh, there's no question that uh, non-blacks and people throughout the world understand the vitality and the importance uh, of black cultures uh, to American and Western life. And that's precisely what the New Negro Movement was trying to show. And so I think that, again, a lot of those tensions I described are still there. Um, but nonetheless, I think uh, you have to conclude that even with its limitations, the movement and obviously uh, this is also benefit. This is also because there's been other cultural movements after the 1920s, like the Black right. Arts Movement, the 1960s and 70s, right? Among others, I mean, hip hop culture. It's a tremendous impact among young people over the last 30, 40 years. Is uh, just one example of uh, of uh, you know, I think you could you directly link that to the legacy of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Well, we could talk about this for hours, but we're going to have to stop. So, thank you very much, Frank. Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.